leaves you up the creek. And I, I want to say this too, because I was really wanting this to be up there this morning and, and I don't, go ahead and yeah, leave it there for a second. <laughs> We're keeping that up there for a while. Now don't, don't take it away from me. But, uh, you know, working back there is a tough job and they can only do what they can do. And uh, oftentimes, I, you know what I think about uh, Christmas, I thought about getting them a sign that we could put on the window and just say, remember Lot's wife. Because when people look around there, you know, back at them, <laughs> it, it would serve as a good warning for them. But uh, I appreciate all that they do. And uh, we, we uh, often fail. That's a unthanked job. Tonight, well, before we get into tonight's, I wanted to show you, you know, we were talking about making plans to each one of us win one in 2013. And uh, John had written on the back of his, you know, that just kind of resonated with him. And, and he thought, ah, I've got an idea. And so he, you know, he had this design where you fold the paper and you cut out the heart and you, you put a map of the building and you write some good verses on the other side and, and then you uh, say some things there. And he had it all drawn out and even drew the mailbox. You stick it in. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, here's a young man and, uh, you know, he's making plans. How do we, how do we reach out to people? So I just thought that really went well with the, sermon idea that I was presenting, I wanted to share that with you because uh, that's what we need. We need people to think, to brainstorm, and um, if winning souls is the most important thing uh, in the world, we ought to give more thought and more prayer and more brainstorming and attention to it, dreaming, um, than any other facet of our life. And uh, so that's our challenge for this year. Let us work at each one of us trying to win one in uh, 2013. Okay, we can go on. Thank you. Uh, tonight, I wanted to continue a series that we began last week. And, uh, you know, there's, there's reality TV and there's all kind of entertainment and stuff that comes on TV. And I, I was amazed that the average home in America has three television sets. It has just infiltrated our, our culture, our society. We don't even remember what it was like. Maybe a few of us remember what it was like, only having one television, sitting close to it so you could change channels because there was no such thing as a remote control. I asked Kim one day, I said, when we got married, how did we change channels? What, what did we do? And she said, you laid right in front of the television so you could reach up and, and flip. But um, the, even the fine-tuning knob and all those things, uh, we, we, it has become a part of our home, our culture. But I'm telling you, the Bible contains stories that are far better than anything you're going to see on TV. And uh, the themes and the plots that, that the Bible records for us, the, the reality of life that the Bible records for us, is far better than television. But I wanted for this series to uh, make a play off of some television titles and that let those titles be a jumping off place for a biblical story. Last week we talked about the Adams Family, used that title. Um, probably all remember the television show, but we didn't talk about the television show. We talked about Adam's family, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, and some of the lessons that we learned from them. Tonight, I want us to talk about the Three Stooges, 
And what I, I hope that while I've been talking, you've been saying, Three Stooges, where's he going with that? Who are the three stooges that uh, he's going to talk about tonight? Well, I think we have a great illustration of them that works really well. And if you have your Bible, open it to the book of Job. Now you're on to me, right? You got it? Book of Job. Let me just give you a little bit of background to the book of Job, and then we'll get into some particular points. But... You probably remember Job chapter 1. Job is a righteous man. He is an upright man. He's a blameless man. And God is proud of him. When you can live in an upright fashion in an ungodly world where sin and temptation is everywhere, and yet you can, you can maintain your integrity, you can do what's right, um, God takes pleasure in that. Job was a godly man. God took great pleasure in him. But the devil came to God and said, will a man serve God for nothing? And uh, God said, well, yeah, he, he will. And part of that, the devil didn't believe. He said, well, I, I think that the only reason Job serves you is because you have built a hedge around him. And uh, you won't let anything bad happen to you. But if you let some bad things happen, he'll curse you to your face. He'll have nothing to do with you. God was confident that that wasn't the case. And he said, you know, go ahead. Um, I'll let you do to him. I'll let you take what he has. I'll, I'll let you do everything shy of taking his life. And I'm telling you, he will not turn his back on me. And so that's exactly what happened. You get to Job chapter 1, <clears throat> And in Job chapter 1, the devil, well, do you remember the story? I mean, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but I want you to feel or think about what it must have been like for Job because he loses everything. All of his servants end up dying and only one will survive. Just one who comes back and says, hey, this happened to your livelihood, your, your, uh, you know, your, your uh, animals, and all your servants are dead, and I alone escaped. And no sooner than he gets done, another guy comes and says, oh, all your, you know, lightning came down from heaven, killed all your animals, all your servants. I'm the only one that escaped, and I'm here to tell you what happened. All this kept happening and taking place, and finally, his sons and his daughters, ten children in one day, are taken. They die too. Then Job gets boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he just, he stays there and, um, well, sits on a a pile of broken pots and therefore, and, and just scrapes his wounds. A pathetic situation. As you get to Job chapter 3, Job just says, Lord, why can't I just die In fact, why did I even have to be born? I I would have been so better off if I would have just been like a stillborn child and just died before I ever saw the light of day. That's misery when you reach a point in your life where you just want to be dead. And can't you understand that? I mean, have you or could you imagine the pain that Job must have felt to have lost 
10 children in one day. The shock of it and everything that he has and even his own flesh is now just, he's existing, but man, he just wants to be dead. In that context, turn with me to Job chapter 1 and begin with me in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard all uh, all the, this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Uh, they had made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him and to comfort him. And they raised their eyes from afar, and they didn't recognize him. And they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one even spoke a word to him, for they saw his grief was very great. These three friends come to Job's aid. They heard of his calamity. They decide to meet up together and go and try to comfort their friend. And when they get there and they see the pathetic situation he's in, boils from head to toe, sitting here, they, they are, they're appalled. And they just sit quietly in his presence for seven days. They don't say a word to him. They're just there. They realize that words aren't really going to help at this point. What he doesn't need is an explanation. He just needs comfort, love. And so they sit there for seven days. Probably that's the best comfort they could have provided. And as you know, when they began to speak, that's when they blew it. If we could have stopped the story in chapter 1 of his friends, we wouldn't be talking about these three friends as the three stooges. But because they spoke, they created problems for Job, and they showed their own foolishness in what they did. And I also want you to notice, too, that even though Job endured this hardship, and he, he wished he were dead, he wished he could just be done with it all, Never in the book of Job did he turn his back on God. There were times when he expresses his doubt and his confusion over why God would allow him, a righteous man, to suffer as he did. He didn't understand why God would allow this to take place if he's all-powerful. Why would you not protect me? Those things were were a problem to Job, but he never doubted. In fact, in Genesis, or, uh, in Job chapter 19... He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he said, I'm fully confident that I will someday see him. He hadn't given up on God. He hadn't shaken a fist at God. He hadn't turned his back on God. He planned to go to be with God, even in the midst of his tragedy. But he just didn't understand. Well, let's look at why I would call Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, or compare them to the Three Stooges. It's because of what they said. If you have your Bible, let's begin with Eliphaz. Turn in your Bible to Job chapter 4. The movement of the book of Job is these friends talk, lecture Job. They give their opinion to Job and lecture Job. and, And Job then responds to them. And then the next friend speaks for a little while and and kind of puts it to Job, and Job responds to him, and and then the third friend. And and they would go through this 
arguing and Job responding. And here in Job chapter 4, we see the problem of Eliphaz. Look at verse 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8. Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same. This is Job's friend. Job's friend says, Job, you show me one righteous person that has ever had the kind of calamity that you're facing. It doesn't happen. Righteous people don't have these kind of things happen to them. Oh, but I've seen wicked people who sow trouble and boy, they reap it. You have done something wrong, and you need to fess up. You need to admit what you've done. You are wrong in what you're doing. You know, here's the problem. Here's Eliphaz's problem. He expresses a true principle, but his application of it is wrong. Is it true that we reap what we sow? Galatians chapter 6 says so. It is true that we reap what we sow, Galatians 6 and verse 7. But what his application of that principle, that's where he went all wrong. Since you have trouble in your life, you must be doing something wrong. That's not the correct application. It is true that a person who does wrong will reap what they sow, but that harvest doesn't always come in this life. Sometimes it's meted out in the next life. And it's not the case that just because you do the right thing, you won't ever have trouble in this life. And so he's mistaken in his theology. And he beats on Job. He's already lost everything. And now his friend comes and wears him out even more, accusing him of being a vile sinner. And Job has done nothing wrong. So that's a problem with that friend. Let's move on and let's also look at the next man, Bildad. Job chapter 8, look at verses 2 through 7. How long will you speak these things? He's just heard Job defend himself. And so he says, Job, how long are you going to continue this way? How long do you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert justice or judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. What's he say? Job, quit trying to defend yourself. Where have you ever seen God not punish the wicked? If your sons were upright, this never would have happened to them. And if you would humble yourself and tell God you're sorry for whatever it is that you've done, then he would restore you and you can get back to living. He hadn't done anything wrong. And again, he's falsely accused by this man. And again, it's true in application what he said, or in principle what he says, but his application is wrong. It is true that if you're guilty of sin, you need to repent. But he hadn't sinned. That's not why all this happened to him. 
Let's look at the third friend, um, Job chapter 11. And this is just a rough, uh, I'm just picking out some illustrations of what they said and the, the basic content of what they said. He said, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and, and put it far away, and you would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear. Same story, you know, third verse. Job, if you could honestly lift up your hands to God and then be clean, God would hear you. There's something going on you're not telling us about. You're not able to lift up holy hands to God. Because of what has happened to you, it it gives you away. You're betrayed by what has happened. Job hadn't done anything wrong. He had maintained his integrity. He was a man who worshipped God. Oh, he wasn't sinless, but he was blameless. And and he worshipped God. And he sought his forgiveness for the sins that he did commit. And so you have these three friends who incorrectly accused them. Their their theology was wrong. And they also uh, falsely accused Job. Have you ever been falsely accused? Can you imagine what Job must have been thinking as he's sitting there and, and he's in the midst of unparalleled grief? And to have your three friends telling you, you need, you've done something, you're wrong and insisting that you've done something wrong, that, that had to have been terrible for him to endure. Um, I think, too, also, there, there are times when people are poor comforters. I, I hear people say this all the time. I just don't know what to say. You know, I want to reach out to somebody. I understand they've suffered a terrible loss, and I want to say something, but I don't know what to. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, and and so they, well, they inadvertently shy away from those people. When people need them the most, they run the other direction because they're afraid, because they don't know how to deal with it, and they don't know what to say. Let, let me give you some advice, not that you need it. You probably know all this. But you don't have to say anything. When someone is hurting, just your presence, just a pat on the back, a hug, just a word that says, I'm sorry, that's sufficient. You don't have to have answers. You don't have to answer questions that may be raised. Somebody may come to you and say, why, why, why would this? Why would God allow? You don't have to answer. Because I don't even know in that emotional state they're really looking for answers. It's just an expression of frustration and confusion. And even if you gave them the why, I don't know that it would resonate with them. Saying, I'm sorry, is a whole lot more honest and helpful than saying, I understand what you're going through. I went to a lady's house one time. She had just lost her husband, and I sat down, and word began to circulate among the congregation that her husband had died, and so people began dropping by. And a lady who had also lost her husband showed up while I was still there, 
And first thing out of her mouth was, I lost my husband too, so I understand exactly what you're going through. She about got scalped. The lady that had just lost her husband reacted. I mean, she's emotional. It wasn't a, it wasn't a rational reaction, but she lit into that sister who had come to offer support because she said, you have no idea how I feel. Just because your husband dies doesn't mean that you understand the depth of the relationship that I had with my husband. And uh, it, it was an ugly scene for a while. But I, I remember it, and I learned a lesson from it. Should that woman have been more patient? Well, of course. That woman didn't mean any harm by what she said, but she's in an emotional state, and, and she wasn't thinking as, what if she would have just come and said, I'm sorry? That's more truthful and really more easily gauged than to say, I understand just how you feel. We don't have to say words. Those friends of Job were good comforters while they were there seven days and said nothing. The comfort stopped when they opened their mouth. They ruined it. So let's try to help people and realize that your presence is all that's necessary. Um, Some of the things that we say, some of the things that I've heard people say just kind of make you... Cringe, And if we would stop and think about it, if somebody said it to you, oh, well, so-and-so lost a child, well, people will, I hear it all the time. People say, when we lost a child, someone came up to us and said, well, at least you're young. You can have another. That's not what they want to hear. Or God must have had use for them in heaven, so he, he took that child away. Do you think it's God who took the child away? You know, that, that, that directs anger maybe at, at God that, that is needless anger. There are all kind of things that people say. We just need to be careful that when we open our mouths that we're comforters and that we don't speak about that which we do not know. I don't know why people die, and I don't understand how God's providence works in all that. I know that he had hand in people's lives and deaths in the Bible, but you know how I know that? Because he tells me, and I'm not sure unless he tells me. So let's refrain from those kind of statements. Let's be comforters. And don't leave people to themselves. Reach out to them. Don't, Don't shun them. Don't isolate them because you feel uncomfortable. They just need comfort, and you can give that to them by your presence. They also, (coughs) excuse me, another problem that makes it foolish, they had an incorrect belief system. They accused Job falsely. They were poor comforters. And maybe worst of all is that they misrepresented God. They viewed God as being angry with Job, and vengeance was his. God wasn't angry with Job. God had pity on Job. God loved Job. God was proud of Job, and they misrepresented God. Let's make sure that no matter what the circumstance may be, that we accurately represent God. If any man speak, Peter said, let him speak as the oracles of God. I I don't want to misrepresent God to anybody. 
I don't want God to appear angry when he's not. And I don't want him to appear happy and everything's good when he's not. I want to represent God accurately. They misrepresented God. And God took it seriously. In fact, if you go all the way to the end of the book, after all was said and done, and their argument continued on for a number of chapters, at the end of the book, it is Job that God goes to and says, Job, I'll tell you what. You're in a situation now that you can help your friends because I'm, they, they have not done you right and they've not done me right. And if you want, you can offer sacrifice on their behalf because they need forgiveness. And Job did that for them. They were guilty before God. But in spite of the way they treated God, uh, Job and misrepresented him and falsely accused him, Job was the man of God he was. And he went to God on their behalf, made intercession for them. And so when you look at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they weren't very wise. They made a lot of mistakes. They were supposed to be friends, but they didn't really help very much. And I want us to learn from their mistakes. Let's make sure that we don't add pain to those who are already experiencing pain. Let's learn how to be better comforters. Let's be careful students of God's Word so that we can accurately represent God and not misrepresent Him to others. Let's learn from these three friends who didn't act very wisely so that we can act wisely when called upon. People need friends. Our friends need us to be friends to them. When those times come, we need to be there for them. But let's have better wisdom than these three uh, friends of Job. If you're here tonight, I want to extend the invitation. That's the lesson for tonight. But before we finish up tonight, I want to at least give everybody the opportunity to get their life right with God. There may be some people here that just, you know, they're, they're not ready. They're not prepared. There is a day when Jesus will come again. There will be a last day that the sun rises. I don't know when that is, but that day is coming. And we're a day closer to it than we were yesterday. If, if you're not ready to meet the Lord, if you don't have that upright character that Job had that allowed God to say, Him? Oh yeah, man, I am proud of Him. He is blameless. Would God say that of you tonight? If he went by each one of us and threw his arm around us, would he give us a love tap? Or would he be grabbing our shoulder a little tighter and saying, get your life right? I want God to be proud of us. Is he proud of you? If he's not, change, your thing, change the way you're living. If you need to respond to the invitation to be baptized into Christ, you know you should and you just haven't done it. If you need to do that tonight, we'll assist you in that. And if there are things in your life that aren't the way they should be and you know that God isn't proud of you right now, then repent and he'll forgive you. If you need to respond, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing. like the